Please take your Bible and turn with me to the book of First Peter. This morning we are finally finishing our study of the book of First Peter, and we're in verses 12 through 14. First Peter chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible and ask you to follow along in whichever version you have with you. 1 Peter 5.12, through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. See who she, rather, who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be to you all. Who are in Christ. Peter is very clear when he tells these to whom he first wrote these words, and the Spirit of God is still speaking these words to us today, that what he has written is the true grace of God. Now, pause with me just a moment. Let's think about what Paul wrote to Titus, found in the second chapter. Of Titus, He said, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. The grace of God is critically important to our salvation. No grace, no salvation. There are various definitions which have been given that are very good definitions of what grace is. Some have described it as unmerited favor, and they are correct in so describing it. Others have described it as love which stoops. It comes down to human level to give us itself in the person of Jesus Christ. An acronym of grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. All of those are important. But let's be a little more specific in terms of the way in which this grace which has come is for the salvation of all people including us. Salvation is a loaded word in the New Testament. We tend to limit our understanding of the word salvation and narrow its scope to have to do with our justification. Justification is a courtroom term which the New Testament writers borrowed to describe our entry into the family of God. We were dead in our trespasses and sin, and then God came in the person of Jesus Christ and He took care of that. In the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, this is what we hear the Word of God say to us. It says, God has freely given us His glorious grace. That's a beautiful way of describing grace. His glorious grace in the one whom He loved, speaking of Jesus. In Jesus, we have redemption through His blood. And the forgiveness of sin... Tremendous thought. The forgiveness of sin according to the riches of His grace. Grace is very important. It's the entry point. We come to God through faith, by grace, and we receive eternal life. Phenomenal. I love that song that we were led to sing just a few moments ago. It's right out of the book of 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. The Scripture says, How great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. 
Let me stop here and take note of one of the statements in that beautiful description of the love of God. How great a love the Father has bestowed upon us. The word translated bestowed is a word which means there was a moment when God bestowed that love upon us and called us His children. And the grammar of that verb suggests He will never pull the rug out from under us. He has bestowed it upon us and it's done. It will never be undone. You don't have the capacity to undo it, nor do I. We no more have the capacity to rip away the grace of God from our lives than we did to give grace to ourselves. It's a wonderful work. And we are the children of God. Peter talks about the importance of our standing firm in the true grace of God. He's written, he says, briefly about it. Let's look at three things which he said. These are samples, but let's look at chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This is the gospel of grace, that we have been caused to be born again. We never would have been born the second time were it not for the grace of God. He's called us and resurrected us to a life of following Him and serving Him. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race. In the introduction to the book of 1 Peter, he speaks in the first verse of how those to whom he wrote were chosen by God, according to the foreknowledge of God, chosen by God. That in itself is a statement of the grace of God. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him, who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. I suggest to you, this is the true grace of God. We were non-existent spiritually. We were dead, as I've already mentioned this morning. And then we were called to life. God made us someone of significance, His children, His sons and daughters, as an aspect of the true grace of God. Turn to 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. We're the unjust. Jesus is the just. In order that He might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. The only way that you and I or anyone else can get to God is through the grace of God in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. This is the true grace of God. First Peter is chock full of the true grace of God as it relates to our justification, our being made right. The fact is that there is therefore now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Is that grace? Of course it is. Justified by God through His grace as we put our trust in Him. But this word salvation, when the Scripture says in Titus 2.11... For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, 
it's not simply limited to that aspect of justification. It also includes our sanctification. In what, pray tell, is sanctification? In chapter 1, the command is, be holy as I am holy. God says that to us. And the word holy means be set apart. And it actually translates the same word that is typically translated sanctify or sanctification in the New Testament. We have been set apart by God in order to accomplish the purpose that He has for our lives. He saved us in order that we might declare His excellencies in a world that is dying for the truth of Jesus Christ and dying in its sin. We are the bearers of the good news of Jesus, the true grace of God. The verse which follows, the one which I have mentioned twice already, I'm going to mention it the third time, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. But Paul didn't stop there, nor does the Spirit of God. He goes on to say, and instructing us to deny ourselves ungodliness and worldly desires. That's the negative side of sanctification. And then he goes on to say, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. This salvation which has appeared, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to you and to me if we know Him, includes the power to live the Christian life. I would dare to say that there is a large portion of the audience this morning who has yet to grasp this important truth. That it's Christ who lives His life through us when we properly relate to Him in submission to Him. It is He who makes it possible for one to live the Christian life. Paul puts it this way. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he said, By the grace of God, I am what I am. And even a cursory look at the life of Paul would indicate he accomplished a whole lot. But he says in the book of Romans 15, I do not presume to speak about anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 26, verse 12, the Bible says, What we have accomplished, you have done. What I have accomplished, or you have accomplished, if it's really anything of significance, it has been done by God Himself. Not by us. Yes, we do have to cooperate. We are to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in us, both to will and to work according to His good pleasure. Who would stimulate me, in the first place, to want to do the will of God? I would have no inclination, nor would you, nor would anyone else, to do the will of God, and certainly not to have the power to do the will of God, were it not for the grace of God. Paul says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Then he seems to switch horses in midstream because he makes this statement. I have labored labored even more than all of them. He's talking about the false teachers who had infiltrated the church at Corinth. Then he says, yet not I, but the grace of God within me. Please understand, 
that the power for living the Christian life is the grace of God. That's why Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Jesus is the personification of grace. He has come to indwell us. Indwell us, the Bible says, of His fullness we have all received. If we have been the recipients of the great grace of God, the true grace of God, that has been received by us in the person of the Holy Spirit who indwells us by His Spirit, Holy Spirit living in me gives me the power. It's the power of Christ. It is the true grace of God. Having made those introductory remarks, I'm going to ask two questions of this passage which we're considering today as to what are the marks of true grace. The first answer to that question is peacefulness. Look at the last sentence in the passage. I'm kind of going through the back door here, but follow, please. Peace be to you all who are in Christ. Perhaps you've noticed when you've read the books of Paul particularly, he has a way of introducing his letters to those to whom he wrote. Invariably, he will introduce them this way, grace and peace. And sometimes he interjects the word mercy. He says sometimes grace, mercy, and peace. But normally, it's simply grace and peace to you from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice the order. Which came first? Always grace and then peace. There is no peace unless there first is grace. A lot of people are looking for peace. Perhaps you came here this morning looking for peace. Your life is in an uproar internally, maybe externally also. You're looking for peace. Well, you need to find the grace of God first before you will be one who enjoys the peace of God from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This peacefulness that is available and is part of the package, as it were, when we stand firm in the true grace of God, is peace with God first and foremost. The Bible says in Romans chapter 5, verse 10, while we were enemies in Parenthetically, I would say of God, so I think I'm safe in interjecting that prepositional phrase. Why, if while enemies of God, while we were enemies of God, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son on the cross. We've already looked at that. Jesus is our Redeemer. Jesus is the propitiation for our sin. He became the place of atonement, the place of pleasing God. When He was on the cross, He took the full brunt of the, of the wrath of God upon Himself when He died on the cross. And the result of that is phenomenal. We have peace with God. Do you know what God has done with your sin, if you know Him? God has forgotten your sin. The Bible says, God speaks in the book of Hebrews, their sins and lawless deeds I will remember no more. What does that mean? It means no more. He's forgotten them. 
He's not ignorant of the fact that we sinned, but he is not thinking of it in terms of holding it against you or me if we are in Christ. We are the recipients of the true grace of God. And with that grace being received comes the wonderful peace with God. Peace with others too. Look at verse 13. She who is in Babylon, this is probably a reference to the church of Christ in Rome. Babylon, you may recall in the Old Testament, was always held up as a center of power and corruption. Rome was the New Testament reflection of the same sort of center. It was a center of power as well as corruption. That's where Peter was when he wrote this letter. More than likely, he was there. He says about the church in Rome, chosen together with you. The word actually is the word co-elect with you. We are the elect. If we've received Christ, we are the elect. And every other church in Jesus Christ is likewise the elect. We are in Christ. Peace to you all who are in Christ. We have peace with God And we also can have peace with one another. It's so natural. We are children of God. We are of our Father, God. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. Christ being the only begotten Son of God. And by our association with Him, we too have been the recipients of this great grace. The word brother or sister, Adelphos, is the masculine, Adelpha, the feminine. And Adelphos and Adelpha mean the very same thing. Literally, it means from the same womb. We are for the same, from the same womb. Now, I know some of you have problems with your natural-born siblings. And I might add, some of you have problems with your spiritual brothers and sisters, too. Well, the reality is, that is displeasing to our Father. Therefore, He has made a way not only to have peace with Him, but also with each other. We have peace with each other. The Bible says in Romans 12, 18, If possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with your brothers and all other people as well. All men. This is the call you and I have upon our lives. Verse 14, Greet one another with a kiss of love. Now, what's this all about? This went out of practice in the 13th century in the Western church. It's still practiced in the Greek Orthodox Church, the Eastern versions of Christianity, still practiced. It was no longer a kiss that would be exchanged between people of the opposite sex. In the 4th century, it was banned by the church leaders. But in Jesus' day, prior to the formation of the church... It was very customary in Judaism, and probably outside of Judaism in the Near East, where people, when they would greet each other, and we have an example of this in the book of Luke, chapter 7. You may remember there was a man named Simon. He was a man of quite a bit of means and reputation, and he was invited by Jesus to a banquet in his house. And when Jesus got there, all of a sudden, a woman shows up. And she was a woman of ill repute, a prostitute. She came in weeping. She had nothing to give to Jesus but her tears. 
And she knelt down while Jesus was eating. And you may also know that when people ate, they sort of reclined at the table, one elbow on the table, another hand free to eat. And Simon was incredulous. He was indignant at the very thought that Jesus would allow this woman to do what she was doing to Jesus, weeping and washing his feet with her tears. After all, this is the way Simon reasoned. If he's a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this is. Well, Jesus was quite aware of what Simon was thinking. And this is what he said to Simon. When I got here, you did not kiss me. But this woman has been kissing my feet the entire time as she washed them with her tears. Jesus rebuked the man for not kissing him. The custom was, among the Jews, is when someone would greet someone else, it would be customary to put the hands on the shoulders of the individual and then bust one side and sometimes both cheeks. Jesus practiced this, obviously. By the time Peter writes this, this idea of greeting one another with a kiss of love was practiced regularly among the believers. This is how it worked. Whenever the believers would meet for worship, there would be a time for seekers, people who were inquiring about the possibility of a relationship with Jesus and admission into the church of Christ, they would be catechized, would be a way, they would be taught the gospel. And then after they had been taught, they were dismissed. And after they left the room, there would be certain prayers which would be prayed as the body of believers had gathered there. And then there would be a call for the bringing of the bread and the bringing of the cup for the observance of the Lord's Supper. But prior to that, there would be the passing of the peace. And this kiss of love was no longer called a kiss of love later on in the New Testament era, in the post-apostolic era. It would just be called the peace. And it had great significance to it. St. Augustine, you probably know the name, said this about those who practiced giving one each other this kiss of love. He said, when they do this, they demonstrate their inward peace by an outward kiss. You see, when this practice was upheld in the New Testament church, the kiss was the sign that all injuries were forgotten, that all wrongs were forgiven, person to person, And that those at the table of the Lord were indeed in the Lord. This was a wonderful practice. It reminds me of what Jesus says, not specifically about the Lord's Supper, but what He says about the worship of Him and the Father. He says, Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there, then go. And be reconciled to your brother. Then come and resume your worship. What does that tell us? If we come to a place like this, whether we're observing the Lord's Supper or not, and we have aught against our brother, our brother has something against us, we need to lay it down and get right with our brothers. It is important that we do this, especially when we observe the Lord's table. 
Because as Paul taught the Corinthians, he said, many of you are sick and some of you have even fallen asleep. That means died because you have partaken of the Lord's Supper unworthily. And the primary word way that we take of the Lord's Supper unworthily is to hold something against our brothers or sisters in Christ. Well, I'm not suggesting we start kissing each other. But I am suggesting, and the Holy Spirit would certainly suggest to you and me, that we warmly embrace each other in our hearts. And we prize the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace so much that we do not want to quench the Holy Spirit anymore. To put out the Spirit's fire is what it means to quench. To put the Spirit... You know, if we hold grudges against others, we put out the Spirit's fire. We do. If we are anxious, we quench the Spirit. Because the Bible says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything... By prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God and look what happens. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. If I take my eye off the ball, what do I mean by that? If I lose my focus, what do you mean by that, Mike? If I do not keep my eyes on Jesus if I am distracted by the terrible circumstances in and around me, and I take my eyes off the Lord, I quench the Spirit. Why do I say that? Jesus says in John 14, He says, Stop letting your heart be troubled. You believe in God? Believe also in Me. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world does, but I have the real deal, Jesus says. I give you my peace. Not some, some paper mache version, facsimile of peace. Jesus has the peace. And we lose the peace and we quench the work of the Spirit when we take our eyes off the Lord. We do not act in faith. And here's sort of the umbrella under which these suggestions and others that are in Scripture would fall when it comes to our losing our peace. In Isaiah 48:18, the Bible says, If only you had paid attention to my commands, your peace would have been like a river. Do you ever go to a river and watch it flow? There's a mystery to it. There's great power in it. I grew up on the banks of the Mississippi River. And every once in a while, I would find myself on that bank and just watching the powerful river. It didn't look so powerful on the surface. I could tell it was flowing swiftly. And I was told, you don't get in that river because you'll get sucked under and they'll never find you again, maybe. I took that seriously. The power of obeying the Lord and the peace of God which attends the obedient heart there's peace like a river for us as we trust the Lord. 
Maybe you're here this New Year's Day, and you once had peace, but you don't have it today. May I suggest the strong possibility that you don't have it because you have tried to have it both ways? The Bible says, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. If Baal is God, the false God of the Canaanites, follow Him. The Middle Ages theologians had a word for this problem of peacelessness. They call it ascedia. The Latin word, which is the idea of a spiritual depression because of a refusal on the part of our lives as true believers in Jesus, people who have experienced the true grace of God, but we have deviated from the path that God has established. It's the idea of trying to straddle the fence. One foot in the world. Remember why the grace of God has appeared? Bringing salvation to all of us? So that we can deny ourselves what? Ungodliness and worldly desires. One foot in the world and try to keep the other foot in the kingdom of God. It just does not work. You might as well quit trying to be in the will of God if you're going to try to be in the world. It cannot happen. And you will suffer unnecessarily, I might add, but you will suffer because of your refusal to trust the Lord In the book of Isaiah, chapter 26, verse 3, probably some of you have already thought of this, as I've been talking about peace. This is what the Scripture says. You will keep in perfect peace, talking to God, him whose mind is steadfast because he trusts in you. This is the key to peace. How is it restored if we've lost it? Well, we admit that we have sinned against the Lord in whatever way we are aware of. Confess your sins. And He will take care of that. Repent of your sins. He will take care of that. Remember what we have learned already? God says there are sins and lawless deeds I remember no more. Be filled with the Spirit. Well, the first mark is... Peacefulness. Here's the second mark. Faithfulness. Look at verse 12. Through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Faithfulness. This word faithfulness means trustworthiness. It means reliability. It means loyalty. The book of Proverbs, chapter 20, verse 6 says, Many a man proclaims his own loyalty. I read just last week about a man whom I had only had a passing acquaintance with, and I couldn't have told you his name. The only way I knew about him was he was labeled the great imposter by his biographer, Robert Crichton. His story was put in film, 1961, That's probably where I remember a little bit about it. I didn't see it. I was not old enough to see it, probably. The great imposter. This man's actual name at birth was Ferdinand Waldo de Mara. And he did all kinds of things. He was 
a man who was a warden in a prison. He was a man who worked with special needs children. He was a man who taught at Gannon College and St. Martin's College. He was a man who was a practicing licensed, albeit a false license, a licensed psychologist. He was the man who gave, according to my research, Steve McQueen last rites. And if I'm not mistaken, that would have been right across the border. Did he not die in what is? Didn't he? So he was here in this area. There are many more things I could mention about this pretender, this great imposter. But his most magnificent feat took place in 1951 off the shore of what now is North Korea. He was the medical officer on a Canadian Navy destroyer known as the Cayuga. And he was below deck. He heard someone shout his name. There had been a boat coming toward their destroyer, a small boat filled with injured Korean soldiers, the enemy. There were 19 in all. They were mangled. They were dying because they had been caught in a crossfire in an ambush. And he saw what the situation was. Now remember, he was a medical doctor. At least he portrayed himself that way as a medical doctor. And he had all this mess to try to clean up. And he did what I would have done. He went and he got into his cabin and he locked the door. Now, I don't think I would do this, but I might have if I'd done what he'd done before. He got a big swig of scotch to kind of brace himself. Then he had a book that had been given to him by another medical officer whom he had solicited this book from. And it was a manual for how to treat wounds on the battlefield. And he did a quick study of that. He closed the book. He gave orders to those who would help him in the operating theater, makeshift as it was, and the seas were rough. He had to tie the gurney down where people were being operated on. For 48 hours, he performed surgery. Some were pretty difficult. He opened the chest cavity of at least one and through big doses of penicillin and his removing bullets, actually, from people and setting bones and what have you, all 19 of those men survived. Now, that's a miracle. I wouldn't necessarily choose him to be my doctor, but he did pretty good, you know. But this man was the anti-Sylvanus. Sylvanus was not at all like this man. He was a man who could be depended upon. He was a man whose word was his bond. If he said he was going to do something, you could be sure he did it. And Peter admired him greatly. And we'll see why he had such admiration for him in just a moment. The word Silvanus, the name, is his Latin name. He was a citizen of Rome. We're told that in Acts 16:27. This is the Latin name. Silas is his other name. That's his Greek name. His actual Aramaic name was the name Saul. That was his name. Aramaic being a sister language of Hebrew. So his real name, Hebrew name, came back to Saul. But he was known as Silvanus and Saul. But he was a faithful brother. He was Peter's courier. When this letter was finished, undoubtedly he was the one who took it back to the people 
in Babylon, that is, in Rome. And here's a hint as to why we know that. Look again at verse 12. Through Silvanus, our faithful brother, I have written to you briefly. After the word Silvanus in the original text, in the Greek word order, there's the word Silvanus and then the dative prepositional phrase, to you. He's Silvanus to these people in Rome. They knew him. They knew he was a faithful brother. They knew that when he brought the letter, they could count on its being from Peter. They knew it would be a legitimate and binding sort of communication. He took the letter as a courier. But he was more than a courier. Before I give you my reason why I believe that, last week I was in conversation with someone about President-elect Trump's inaugural speech. I didn't know anything about it. I said, what, what do you know about it? And this person who was very knowledgeable about such things said, well, he has said it's going to be a short speech. And I said, I wonder if anyone's going to help him on the speech. And the same person said, he says he's going to write it. But my research revealed he's got someone to help him a little bit at least. Stephen Miller, who his, his policy advisor, he's a senior White House staffer, only 31 years of age. He has helped him before. He's helping him again to craft the speech. And then I got curious. I thought, I wonder when President Obama was inaugurated the first time in 08, if he wrote his speech out. He's an eloquent man and a learned man, well-educated. And I'm not saying that Trump's not, so don't misunderstand. But he's not the orator that President Obama is, for sure. And what I discovered was that when he was getting ready to put his speech together, he enlisted the help of someone who had helped him for months on the stump with his speech writing. His name is John Favreau. At the time, he was only 27 years of age. President Obama described him at that time as his mind reader. It was like he had been able to get inside the mind of President Obama, and he thought just like Obama thought when it came to communication. So, President Obama called Favreau in. He spent an hour visiting with him, casting his vision of what he believed America would look like if he had his way, and he sent him off to work on the speech. There were four or five meetings later each time he would bring it back, having written what he thought would fit the president, the president would look at it, he would scratch and scratch and scratch, say, take it back, add these things, take these things away. That happened four to five times, and then he gave his speech. Well, what does that have to do with Sylvanus and Peter? Well, it's likely it has a lot to do. Because Bruce Metzger, who is one of the greatest New Testament scholars, he's deceased now, but a great scholar of textual criticism and understanding the way people wrote documents in that day, said that there were many people who were professional stenographers. They would hire themselves out to people who were orally giving some kind of statement, and they would, in a form of shorthand, write down what they heard the person say. Then they would go away and then transcribe that into longhand, and then take it back, hand it to the one who had given the information to let that person look it over 
and make corrections and then go back again. And that would happen over and over again. This whole speech writing thing has a long history, doesn't it? Now, I'm not saying, I don't know for sure if that's what happened between Sylvanus and Peter. But what I do know, when I look with my Greek reading eyes at the text of 1 Peter, it's some of the highest Greek in the whole New Testament. Now, remember Peter. He was a fisherman. He is described in Acts chapter 4 as an uneducated man. He was no dummy. Has nothing to do with intelligence. Hey, his first language was Aramaic. He undoubtedly could write Aramaic, read Aramaic. He would give this to Silvanus. Now remember, Silvanus was Jewish. His first language probably also was Aramaic, but he was fluent in Greek. He would listen. He was an educated man because he was a Roman citizen. He had the privileges of education. He was educated not simply in the Torah, the law, but he was also educated in Greco-Roman thought. And he would take that down, perhaps. He would listen to what Peter said. He took it down carefully. And then after he put it in a more polished, finished fashion, likely he handed it to Peter and said, Peter, does this sound like what you said? And I don't know if there were revisions. There could have been revisions. But up to verse 12 of chapter 5, this is the work of Silvanus as his stenographer. His amanuensis is the word that is used among New Testament scholars. But when you get to verse 12 through 14, I mean, it's a train wreck in terms of Greek grammar. And I mean, you just have to take my word for it. It definitely is different, which would lend credence to what I've said. Does that mean it's not God's word? Absolutely, it is God's word. This is God's message to Peter, Peter's Fingerprints are all over what we read here. Peter trusted this man because he was a faithful man, a reliable man. He admired him so much because Peter had been unfaithful to Jesus, had he not? If he were to introduce himself, he probably would say something like this, I'm the apostle who blew it. I'm the apostle who bragged about how brave I would be and how when all the others would abandon Jesus, I would not abandon Jesus. And then within a few hours after I'd made that great boast, I did exactly what Jesus said I would do. I turned my back on Jesus. And I am the man also whom Jesus restored He said to me, Simon, Simon, Satan has gained permission to sift you like wheat. And I have prayed for you. But when you return, did you catch that when Dan read that? But when you return, what was he to do? Restore the brothers. The work of restoration is a huge work. We have been called as followers of Christ, to a ministry of reconciliation, to restoration, putting men back in touch with the Lord when they've fallen away from the Lord. Helping people. Peter was not fit for that until he had failed the Lord. Now, I'm not saying you and I should go out and fail. Peter was broken by that experience. 
If he could have taken those moments back, he would have taken them back. I'm sure he thought back over all the rash things which he had said and which he didn't say, which he did. And he wished, oh Lord, I wish I could take all those back. It was heartbreaking for him. But God used him, didn't he? Mark had been unfaithful too, hadn't he? If you know the story of Mark, John Mark he's known as, in some settings in the New Testament, in Acts 13, 13, when Barnabas and Paul and Mark were traveling on their first missionary journey, they got to a certain point, and John Mark left. We don't know exactly why, but probably he was afraid. He was not faithful. He left. And when the time came to start out on the second missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas bonded together in Christ, a very good team of evangelists and missionaries, church planters. They had a dispute. Paul kept insisting when Barnabas said, let's take John Mark. He said, no, 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 a thousand times no. He's a liability. And so Barnabas took John Mark. They went their way. Paul took Silas. There's the name again. Faithful brother took him and they went their way. But something had happened since then. If we were to go to 2 Timothy 4, this is what we would read in verse 11. Paul writing to Timothy, Come to me before winter, he says. Bring my cloak, I'm cold, my circulation's bad. Bring my books, especially the parchments, and that would refer to the scroll of what we call the Old Testament. The books, he was an inveterate reader of the Word of God, but other things too. He wanted to become all things to all people, so that by all possible means he might save some. He said, in addition to that, don't just pick up my books and my cloak, but pick up Mark, because he is helpful to me. What happened? Mark failed, right? Something had happened. Barnabas played a huge role of encouragement in his life, but not just Barnabas. Now listen, how does Peter describe Mark? In this passage, my son, Mark. Sound familiar? I've already mentioned it, I believe. Second Timothy chapter two, verse one. You then, my son, Paul speaking to Timothy, he was not his biological son. He was a spiritual son. Peter had adopted Mark. People had seen the value. Peter, this man who failed, undoubtedly knew about how Mark had failed. And he came alongside of him and he embraced him and said, Brother, I understand. It hurts, brother, doesn't it? You feel like you could never be used again by God, don't you? I know exactly how that feels. But I'm here to tell you, brother, that the grace of God is sufficient for you and His power is made perfect in your weakness. Is there anybody here like that today? You have finished a miserable year. It's been a year of faithlessness, not faithfulness. Are you here like that today? Well, the good news is the Lord can restore you and wants to. Dan alluded to the fact that we're reading through the Bible together, and I was reading in Matthew 1 this morning, the genealogy and the rest of it. And usually I just sort of zoop by by those first 17 verses, all those names, so-and-so-and-so-and-so-and-so-and-so. But what arrested my attention today were three names. Tamar, Rahab, and the wife of Uriah. Her name is not even mentioned. Such an ignominious name. We know her as Bathsheba. Tamar posed as a hooker. 
she became one of the great, 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 great grandmothers way on back of Jesus. Imagine that. She shows up in the genealogy of Jesus. And then Rahab ran a brothel. And she became one of his great, 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 great grandmothers. And Bathsheba, whom David bedded down, became one of his great, 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 great grandmothers. What does that tell you? The grace of God is sufficient. Covers all sin. If we repent of our sin. Look, I'm not in any way trying to whitewash sin. It is against God and God only that you and I sin. It is egregious to God. It is heinous to God. It is awful to God when we sin. It's an affront to a holy God for me to sin and you to sin. However, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say it's equally an affront to our holy God to reject His grace when He offers it to us. And if you are languishing in the backwaters of failure, get out of them today. Come to Jesus. Be like the prodigal son who came to his senses and he came to the Lord Jesus Christ and he was changed. You can be restored. The fruit of the Spirit is, among other things, peace. Missing peace? Be filled with the Holy Spirit. The next to the last aspect of the nine aspects of the fruit of the Spirit is faithfulness. Are you lagging behind in faithfulness? Be filled with the Spirit. Do you know what that means? It means to humble yourself. Yield yourself to the Spirit of God. Give your life anew to Him. In 2 Timothy 2.13, this is what Paul writes, If we are faithless, He will remain faithful. Our God is faithful. The Lord is faithful, 2 Thessalonians 3.3, speaking of Jesus. God is faithful. He will not let us be tempted beyond what we can bear. But when we are tempted, He will also provide a way out so we can stand up under it. 1 Corinthians 10.13 If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us, purify us from all unrighteousness. This is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Let's pray. If you've never received Jesus... The first time. Be a great day to begin believing and trusting in Him. A new year, a new life. The Bible says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, that person is a new creation. Do you want to become a new creation today? Do you? Would you say that to the Lord? Lord, I beg you that I could become a new creation. Humble yourself before God. Some of you have long been new creations, but you have become unfaithful to the Lord. Are you aware of that? Are you able to confess that to the Lord? Are you able to deny yourself and repent of that today? And ask Jesus Christ by His Spirit to come and control your life and fill it in a new way today? Would you bow your head and just ask the Lord? If you fit in one of those two categories... Would you just ask the Lord today?
to take over your life fully. Thank you, Lord.